in your Bibles to John chapter 3. And we'll be starting in verse 14 of John chapter 3. The subject that we talked about last week was the subject of new birth. And we talked about the necessity of new birth. You must be born again, Jesus tells Nicodemus. And over and over again, we have the same theme running through Jesus' ministry. You must be born again. This week, we're going to see how new birth happens. Where does it come from? How do we get this new birth? How do we become born again? The late theologian John Stott writes in his book, The Cross of Christ, This is a quote from him. It says, The essential background to the cross is a balanced understanding of the gravity of sin and the majesty of God. If we diminish either, we thereby diminish the cross. If we reinterpret sin as a lapse instead of a rebellion, and God as indulgent instead of indignant, then naturally the cross appears superfluous, superfluous. But to dethrone God and to enthrone ourselves not only dispenses with the cross, it also degrades both God and humans. A biblical view of God and ourselves, however, that is, of our sin and of God's wrath, honors both. It honors human beings by affirming them as responsible for their own actions. It honors God by affirming Him as having moral character. When we diminish the sin in our lives... We diminish the cross is essentially what John Stott is saying. When we say, oh, I'm not that big of a sinner, we are essentially saying we don't need a Savior. If you haven't sinned, then you don't need to be saved. You're perfect. You're going to go there on your own merit. The reality is none of us are perfect. The reality is that we all sin. And sin is rebellion against God. Not just the actions that you do. Not just the the naughty behavior, but the thoughts. Jesus tells us that if you think hate in your heart against someone else, you are murdering them. If you look at a woman lustfully or a man lustfully, you have committed adultery. That's a high standard. And we all have that as our birthright. We all have sinned by birth. We have inherited the guilt if that's not bad enough. So our passage this morning points out this reality. If you think you are sinless or just a little sinner then you aren't saved. I'm going to tell you right now, if you think that you do not have sin, then you are not saved. Only someone who realizes that they are sinners know that they need a Savior. That's the reality. If you think you are sinless, if you think you don't have anything to confess or repent of, then I don't think you are saved. I want to tell you right to your face right now in this room, let's get that straight. Because there are people in this room that I have talked to who I wonder about. And if you have friends that don't think that they're sinners, you need to talk to them. You need to not let them get away with saying, oh, I don't have anything wrong with me. I'm good. It's other people. Those are the problem. The reality is you are letting them continue on with their eyes blinded. There are people that are going to heaven that smell like a bar. There are people that are going to hell that smell like a church pew. And that's the reality. So I want you to take this right now. If you think you have no sin, then you're probably not saved, okay? Think about this as we continue. 
The reality is that we have all been born into rebellion against God. We are born sinners. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is serious stuff. To be born again, you need to recognize your own inability to save yourself. You must have a biblical view of yourself, as John Stott called says. So let's pick up where we left off last week with being born again. Verse 14 of chapter 3 in the book of John. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way. He gave His only, His one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. Or if we like to say it in the, the old King James, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Anyone who believes in Him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned, because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light, so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. Let's pray. Father, what a joyful yet dreadful reality that we have before us in this text. Father, as I think about this sermon, I think about this act of preaching, I think about the other churches in our country and in Canada. Lord, we know that there is a, a push in Canada for a, uh, a law that is, is banning conversion therapy. And the law, the language in it is so broad that we uh, can't help but think that it's an attack on the Christian faith. Father, I know that there are many churches today that have banded together and decided to preach on God's plan for sexuality and gender. Lord, as we have already planned our schedule and, and ble been blessed by you in it, uh, we're not going to change our schedule for that. But Father, I want to lift them up. I want to lift them up that you would protect them, protect the pastors, give them boldness to preach what your word says. Lord, as uh, I preach this message here, this new birth, this being born again, that it would not be my words, but yours, that you would be the one that would get the glory, that the people in this congregation would see you more clearly, love you more dearly, and walk humbly in your ways. Father, we ask these things in the name of Jesus, by your Son, who loved us, who brings the judgment, and who saves us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This last week, we stopped in the middle of the conversation with Nicodemus and Jesus, Nick at night came to Jesus at nighttime and asked him some questions. And Jesus answered him, and he was confused. Nicodemus did not understand exactly what was going on, and so he didn't get it. But later we see that Nicodemus does turn to Christ for salvation, and he finally gets it. Faith in Christ alone will save you. No, no amount of good works, no amount of, of perfect living, no amount of doing the best you can and hoping that you can make it. None of that will save you. It's in Christ alone. 
The second half of this conversation is so important in understanding why and how we are saved. This is John 3.16 is one of the most famous Bible verses that have ever existed. Martin Luther called it a, the gospel in a nutshell. This is the gospel in a nutshell, in smallest form. But to understand the gospel, you have to understand more than just this verse. You need to understand this whole passage. Because Jesus is telling us how salvation happens in a particular way. And it shows that God demonstrates His salvation, His love, and His judgment through Jesus Christ. Or to put it another way, it is through Christ alone that God demonstrates His salvation, love, and judgment. By no other name can we be saved. The first thing we see is verse 14. It says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness. Now everybody in this room is going to be like, What is going on? Are we going to start handling snakes? Are we going to start talking about snakes on staffs and all sorts of things with snakes? You know, my wife would have a heart attack if I brought a snake in here. Uh, snakes are disgusting and gross, right? So what does that have to do with Jesus saving his people? Well, we have to look back to Numbers. And in Numbers, there was a story. A story of the Israelites. Now, if you know anything about the Israelites, you know that they had some major sins that they really liked. And one of them was to grumble. These were the grumblers. They come grumbling, and you know it's just going to be a miserable situation. They grumble about everything. God gives them food from heaven in the shape of a bread called manna. It's a delicious little piece of bread that comes from heaven itself. And what do they complain about? Oh, we're so tired of this bread. Then they're like, oh, I'm so tired of it. I just want some meat. And God says, okay, I'm going to give you so much meat, it comes out of your ears and your eyeballs. Right? He gets, he's fed up with these people who complain and grumble about everything. They get the manna from heaven and they're not satisfied. And so once again, they are grumbling in the wilderness, which is their status quo. Did you know that grumbling is a sin? I'm not talking about our Christian word for grumbling, right? I just want to make something you aware of something. No, but I'm talking about grumbling. This is the grumbling. And their complaints came to God, to Moses, and they were unhappy. And so God said, you know what? I'm done with you people. And so what does he do? He sends serpents, fiery snakes, snakes that will bite you and it will burn and then you will die. You will suffer a poisonous death. And he sends a whole bunch of snakes into the Israelites' camp. And these snakes are biting people, and people are suffering and dying. This is the image that Jesus chooses to use to talk about salvation. I think that's pretty interesting. So, what does Moses do? Moses says, okay, the people come crying to Moses and say, intercede to God for us, Find." Finally, they, they get it. They're like, We're, we've sinned against God. We've sinned against you. Talk to God for us. Save us. And so Moses goes to God, asks him what to do. God says, get a golden serpent, a bronze serpent, put it on a staff and stick the staff in the middle of the camp. If the people look at that staff with the snake on it, they will be healed. They will be saved. So they have to look at the object of their death, of their suffering, and then they will be saved. They look to it. Interesting. Do you know what happens to that bronze serpent staff thing? The Israelites decide to go and offer incense to it afterward, later on down the road. And it has to get destroyed because they're worshiping that rather than God. 
But Jesus decides to use this when he's talking to Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus, being a Hebrew, would know this story very well. And so now you guys know it pretty well. So this time, instead of a serpent being put on a staff, Jesus himself will be lifted up and placed on a staff or a stick or on a cross, and he will be what we look at for salvation. In fact, he becomes the curse for us. He is the poison for us. He is the corruption for us. So now the cross is in mind here. The, the, the depiction here about being lifted up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. This snake image is the perfect symbol, isn't it? It is the snake that, spoke, that the devil used, the serpent, to speak to Adam and Eve in the garden which placed the world into sin and pollution. Now, if you don't see yourself as a sinner in desperate need of a cure, you cannot be saved. Can you imagine if you were bit by a snake? If you were an Israelite, you were bit by a snake, you're burning and dying, and you're saying, no, nah, I'm good. I got this. I'm not worried about looking at no cross. I don't need salvation. But that's what we do when we sin against the holy and perfect God, when we rebel against Him, and we say, you know what? I don't need a Savior. I'll just do this myself. It sums up the destruction that sin causes in our life. No matter how badly sin infects us and how fevered we are with the poison of evil, salvation through Jesus Christ is possible. You can be saved. You must be born again. You can be born again. But you have to do it by looking to Christ. Looking to the one that is lifted up. Verse 15 goes on and tells us why the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now, just a small note here. This word lifted up not only means Him on the cross, but also His further glorification by sitting at the right hand of God and interceding for His saints. So just know that this is also glorification language. So not only is it the cross, but also being raised up. Verse 15 says, So that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. Everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. So why must Christ be lifted up and placed on the cross so that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life? The whole first part of this discourse, the whole first part of this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus points to God's sovereignty in salvation. From the language of birth to the language of wind, it declares that God is is free unrestrained agency in regeneration. Yet, this verse ends with everyone who believes in Him will be saved. Now we got a conundrum, don't we? If God is the one doing the saving, what is my role? What do I do? Where am I in this picture? But not only that, we have eternal life. What does it mean, eternal life? Does that mean that I get this fire insurance now and I cash it in later when I die. This word for eternal life also means abundant life. Life everlasting. Not just a life where I'm never going to die, but I'm going to have life in abundance. It's going to be a good life, a full life, not just an unending life. Something that you can begin to enjoy now and today. And that's a question I want to ask you is, are you enjoying this eternal life now? 
life that is experienced before the end. This is great news. This is joyful news. This life is found in Jesus Christ, the eternal word. New birth is the eternal life found in the eternal word. So the gaze of faith is all it takes. The gaze of faith. We look on this cross of Christ. We look at Christ alone by faith. Not perfect faith. Not complete faith but by faith, by looking to Christ, trusting in Him to take on your sin. In order to see how great a salvation this is, you must understand how badly you need it. It's interesting to me how bad things had to get for the Israelites. If you are in a reading plan and you are going through Judges, you will see the same pattern over and over and over again. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and so the Lord sent someone to punish them, to discipline them, and they were under this kind of level of captivity for so many years, and then God sent a judge to save them. Over and over, same pattern, over and over again, same pattern. So in the same way, Christ is the ultimate, final, complete judge in our bondage to sin. It's not that we all have sinned, which is bad enough, but that we are born into the corruption of sin as a result of Adam's sin. It is inherited. You are guilty by inheritance. You can have the best behavior and still be damned for eternity. This is the reality I want you to get. Not only does this sin, when we sin, is that bad enough, but you are inherited. You have inherited the guilt of Adam. Your representative has done the deed. Just like we would have to go to war if our president made war in another country because he represents us. Just because that happens, we are guilty for his actions. In the same way, we are guilty because of Adam and his sin. He is our federal head, if you want to use that language. We have been we have inherited it. So you could be the, the most perfect person in, in your own mind, because we all know we're not perfect, and still be damned for eternity. No matter how many good deeds you do, no matter how much you want to balance your life and say, look at all the good things I've done, the reality is you have inherited death. You are in desperate need of a rescue. You have been bitten by the venomous snake of sin, and your whole body is dead. It is full of poison. Now, you must see yourself in this state or position, but God will not leave you or us helpless to die for eternity like we deserve. 1 John 1.10 says, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Remember how I said at the beginning, if you say you haven't sinned, you are still lying because you are. God's word says all have sinned. God still shows us rebels His love through Christ Jesus. Now, some people try to make a distinction about God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, saying that God is love in the New Testament, but wrathful in the Old. The thing is, God is unchanging. And so when we see the love of God through Jesus Christ, we need to understand God the Father sent God the Son, and the God the Holy Spirit applied it. So this is three 
persons in one God. And God the Father is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So when we see this love of Christ, which is what we see now, God loves us through Jesus Christ. Verse 16 is the famous one. Can everybody say it? Does everybody have this one memorized? Now, if we say it all together, what we're going to run into is some got the King James, some got the New American Standard, some got some kind of wonky message version, and some of us got this CSB thing, right? And so we all have it different. But the theme, the same idea is the same. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. That's the gospel in a nutshell. That is how God loves us. I like the way the CSB translates it. Um, I'm putting my cards on the table. I think it's closer to the Greek than the other translations. So let me read it to you. For God loved the world in this way. I like that. For God loved the world in this way. He gave His one and only. And I like only begotten better, so we'll just use that. He gave His only begotten Son so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. God the Father loves the world in this way. Why and how would God save us? Well, this verse explains, doesn't it? It says our salvation is an act of God's love. This is the reality. God loves us through Jesus Christ. How He loved the world was by sending His only Son, His only begotten Son. Now, it's interesting that we use this wording because there's a lot of debates about this word, right? Begotten, only begotten. What does it mean that Jesus was not made but begotten? Jesus was not created but begotten. The reality is this word is pointing to an Old Testament story. Does anyone, let's just do a trivia quiz since we're all here. What Old Testament story is John referring to? Is Jesus referring to through John? Does anybody know? Only son. It's the same wording of that of Abraham and Isaac. His only son. He took his only son to sacrifice it on the altar. Remember that Abraham was an old man and didn't have any, inherit any kids that belonged from his line, from his seed. And God promised him a son. And he took that one son at the end. And God said, take your son and go and sacrifice him on the altar on this mountain. And what does Abraham do? He takes his son, takes him up there. And they have some wood with them, but they have no sacrificial lamb. And the son goes, hey, dad, uh, where's the lamb? Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, the Lord will provide. And they go up there. He ties him up, puts him on the altar, and is ready to stab him through the heart. We don't know what was going through Abraham's mind, only that he is going to be obedient to the Lord, and God provides a sacrificial ram for him. It stops him because of his faith. This is the faith that we look at Christ with. Jesus is Christ's, is God's love. So, Abraham and Isaac, this only son concept, God does the same thing by giving his only begotten son so those who believe in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. But once again, we come back to the context. This word believe. Remember in chapter 2, it says, verse 23, While He was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in His name. 
And when they saw the signs he was doing, Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all. And because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So they believed, but not in a saving way. Yet here it says, you have to believe. So what is, what is going on here? Well, saving faith, saving belief has three components. Knowledge, belief or assent, and trust. These are the three components. You must have all three of these to have saving faith. It says that the devils, the, the, the demons, believe in Jesus and they tremble. The demons aren't saved in their belief. So we know that there has to be some knowledge. The devil knows more about God and Christ than anybody else. So that doesn't save us. But we do have to have some kind of knowledge. We have to know what we believe. The second thing is belief or assent. This is what the demons had. They, they believed that Jesus was the Son of of God, that he was truly God, truly man. They believed it, but they didn't trust it, which is our final thing. You have to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. So it's not enough to just know facts about Jesus. Like, you know, he, oh, he was this, he was that. You could probably recite more Bible stories than anybody else. That doesn't save you. There are pastors in pulpits that are not saved. They have a lot of knowledge, but they don't believe through trust. Now, you may believe that he existed. You may believe he is everything he says he is. But if you do not trust him, you are not saved. So, all three for saving faith. Belief contains all three elements. True belief, saving faith. Verse 17 goes on, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The purpose of the Son is not to come as a judge, but to save those that believe through him. This is not teaching a universal salvation, but it is in many ways an expansion from Israel to the rest of the world. This, this language of the world here did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, right? In ancient Jewish knowledge or understanding, the world was evil, right? You have the world when it says, do not be stained by the world, do not fall into the evil deeds of the world. It's referring to the wickedness of things, right? And there's a, a bifurcation, a separation. There's the people of God and the world. And what Jesus is saying is the world can be saved through Jesus Christ. People out of the other nations, the Gentile nations, those dirty folks that love bacon, they can be saved as well. Not just the people of Israel can be saved. It's not a universal salvation, but an expansion from Israel to the rest of the world. The Greek word for world is often a reference to evil, even in non-biblical ways. They use this world, this word cosmos, this world, this word world to recognize evil. It says, do not love the world or the things of the world, is what we're told. And so the world is those things that are not of the people of God, the Israelites. And so they can be saved as well. That's good news for you and me, isn't it? We can be saved through Christ. Verse 18 continues, Anyone who believes in Him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. We are already condemned. There's only two, two positions. Saved and unsaved, condemned and uncondemned. 
those who do not believe are already living in, in condemnation. That's the reality. Uh, I had a question at Awana. Some of these kids are really starting to think. And they asked me the question, what about those, kid, those people in other countries that have no knowledge of God? They've never been told the gospel. They've never been told anything about it. Will God save them? And I said, you can only be saved through Jesus Christ. And they're like, oh. Well, if we don't tell them about Jesus, then will they'll be saved, right? I'm like, no. They are already condemned. The reality is we are already condemned coming out of the womb. So you have two positions. You're in Christ or you're out of Christ. You belong to Adam or do you belong to Christ? If you belong to the line of Adam, you are condemned with the law, the works of, of those type of things. If you're in Christ, you are under him. He becomes the curse for us. The failure is to believe, to trust in Christ. So, we see that God saves us through Christ alone. This is the epitome of love, the greatest example of love. And the question I want you to, to ask is, do you trust Christ as Savior to save you from sin and give you this abundant, this eternal life? Jesus is the object of our belief and our trust. It's not faith that saves you. It's not having enough trust that saves you. It's the object of your faith that saves you. It's what you trust in that saves you. This is an important distinction. I know it sounds like I'm, I'm playing with words or semantics, but I could trust that this chair will hold me up. And I could have a, a, a true trust in this chair or I could have a false trust in this chair. The reality is it's not my trust in the chair's ability, but the chair itself's ability to hold me up, right? I could say, well, I'm gonna trust in this chair and I sit in it and I fall flat on my face. But I really trusted it. I really believed with my whole grip. The reality is it doesn't matter how much I trust, it's what I'm trusting in. So is the object of your faith, the thing that you trust in, Christ or yourself? I think there's a quote in your bulletin by John MacArthur talking about there's really only two religions in the world, the religion of self and the religion that trusts in Christ. And that's the reality is that we all belong to one of two groups. We either believe in our own self or we believe in Christ. And that's what you have to make the decision today. Do you believe in Christ alone for your salvation? And our belief should produce love. It should produce love for others. God's great love for us in Christ should become a wellspring of love to others, to those who don't really deserve it. Becoming more gracious. God's great love for us in Christ should help us to love others, and then not only that, but to obey His commands. Jesus says that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Many people don't like that because it sounds like there's some rules. But if you love Christ, you want to honor Him. You want to serve Him. You want to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It means He is the greatest treasure. You're willing to sell everything else to get Christ. You're willing to get rid of anything else in your life that is an obstacle to this faith. It means that we have a living faith that seeks to be obedient to His revealed will. It means that we confess Jesus is Lord. When you say Jesus is Lord, that means that He is King. And if you love the King, you want to obey what the King says. If you hate the King, then you live in rebellion. It's a confession, but it's also a commitment that should drive your whole life. 
Would you be born again? Then you must trust Christ alone. Because if you don't, you remain condemned. And this is the last part, this last point of this message. God judges through Jesus Christ. Verse 19, this is the judgment. The passage tells us an important truth. If you don't belong to Jesus Christ by faith, you are condemned. But even more so, the reason people don't have faith in Jesus is not because of a lack of evidence, but it is moral. It says here, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Right here tells us how to save somebody. How do we witness to other people? It's not by giving them enough evidence. It's not an evidence issue. There's plenty of evidence that Jesus Christ existed. He said he, said he was who he said he was. And there's evidence of his, uh, his divinity. There's all this that comes through, right? There's eyewitnesses. There's biblical and also additional uh, references to this person, Jesus Christ, who came and said who he was. It's not an evidence issue. People are not, not being saved because they don't have enough information. Not, they don't have enough knowledge. reason people are not being saved, at least in America, in our culture, is because it's a moral reason. Right here it tells us, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved, it's a affection. They loved darkness rather than the light. And why did they do that? Because their deeds were evil. The reason people don't want to come to Christ is because they don't want to have to give up the things that they love, their sin, their wickedness, their evil deeds. This means a decision is important. Judgment is not just the future, but it is now. So when we share the gospel with people, it's not just enough to give them information and say, oh, yeah, yeah, you can be the same. Just tack on Jesus. Right? That's not the reality. The reality is they're not going to love Jesus because they love the wicked deeds that they have. You must be born again to escape this already existing condemnation. The condemnation, the judgment is now, not just when they die. And the more you love something and the more you spend your life into it, it's a lot harder to, to pry your fingers from it. And so the people that you are encountering today, the people that you get your haircut from, the people that you buy your groceries from, the, the people who you uh, walk by or you talk to your neighbors are living already in condemnation. How much do you have to hate someone to not share with them the light of Jesus Christ? And to say, listen, this is good. This is good news because you are living in condemnation. Now, we could try to trick them, couldn't we? And just say, well, Jesus just, just wants you and you don't have to change anything. Just be this, you just be you. Judgment didn't come as a result of Christ coming. It was already here. The world was already under condemnation. Verse 20 goes on and says, For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it, so that his deeds may not be exposed. Uh, probably two years ago, I gave an illustration. When you flip on a light in your house at night, you see two actions begin to happen. The light comes on, and the cockroaches, they run away, right? Maybe if, maybe not at your house, but at some houses, maybe not my house, some houses, you turn the light on, and the cockroaches run and hide. But then the moths are drawn to it, 
And the question I asked was, would you rather be a moth or a cockroach? Right? When it comes to Christ, would you rather run from Christ like a cockroach? Though those are pretty incredible creatures. But cockroach, which is disgusting and gross because they avoid the light. Or would you rather be drawn to the light? And that's the reality we see in this passage that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Everyone was condemned except for those who believe by faith. Verse 21 says, But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light. Now this is a semantic expression. This is a Jewish expression that those who act faithfully or honorably come to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. What John is pointing out here is that the fruit of our efforts show who we belong to. It's the fruit of your efforts. It's not that you are doing good and now the light comes on and you're like, yes, here I am, God, look at my good deeds. I did all this, I gave to the poor, I, I rescued people, I healed this and I did that. That's not what this is about. This is saying that if you belong to the light already, then when the light comes, when Christ returns, you're not going to be like, oh, snap, I'm in trouble, right? You're going to be like, yes, God is here. Lord, look at my fruits. I am saved. Look at what I have done. Okay, so you get the, you get the, the direction. I, I don't want us to get confused and you think, oh, I have to earn this salvation. I'm doing it because I already belong to the truth. Anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light. What John is, is saying is that it's our fruit that is revealed on the last day. And so there are some of you in this room who have been quite comfortable in darkness and don't really want to be held accountable because you're not living in the light. You are not walking in the truth. Your fruit does not reflect who Christ is in you, which makes you wonder, are you truly born again? because you must be born again. This passage isn't telling us how one moves from light to darkness. This is a common misunderstanding with this passage. This passage is not saying how you move from light to darkness, but it's a distinction between those who reject Christ and those who trust Him. Jesus is talking about the fruit of a lack or a not having faith in Him. Jesus is explaining that there is a close connection with doing and being Right, a lot of people tell you, you know, you're a human, you're a human being, not a human doing. Why, why, when I ask you, you know, what do you do? You tell me, oh, I'm a soldier, or I'm a veterinarian, or I'm a housekeeper, or a homemaker, or whatever it is. And everybody's like, no, no, you're a human being, not a human doing. But the reality is, a lot of our being comes from our doing. And so, if you are doing evil works, if you are constantly caught up in sin then that is what you are. That's just the reality. Jesus says there's a close connection with doing and being. You do what you are, and you are what you do in many ways. I'm not saying that just because you're a housekeeper doesn't mean you're special and that we don't love you. I, that's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that our deeds come from something inside of us. Our fruit is a result of our roots. Those who love the light, those born again, practice good works. That is why... They live a life based on the truth of God's word. I like how he says it. He says, verse 21, but anyone who lives by the truth, you are living by God's truth, by God's revealed word, not your truth and my truth and anybody's truth at this moment, but God's truth. Do you live by the very word of God? When you go for advice, 
Do you compare it to what God's Word says, or do you compare it to what feels good? Do you live by your feelings or by the facts of God's Word? That's the reality. So, do you live by the truth? If you don't live by the truth, then you're not born again. That's what Jesus is saying here. Faith without works is dead, but works do not make faith. Faith without works is dead, says James. If you say you are a Christian, but you are nothing but a grumbler, if you say you are a Christian, but you really don't love Jesus, if you say you are a Christian, and you only go through the motions because you feel like you have to, you're not a believer. You need to make this right today. This is the time to make this right. John wants us to know that by faith and faith alone, can you experience new birth and gain eternal life, this abundant life. John is revealing that God demonstrates His salvation, love, and judgment through Jesus Christ. And we know that that faith is a gift. It is a gift of God. Do you know someone who claims to be a Christian, but their life doesn't show it? Maybe ask them this question. How are you saved? It's an uncomfortable conversation, but if they are a Christian, they should have a joyful response. It should be through Christ alone. He took my sinfulness and made Himself the curse on the cross, as Galatians says. Jesus became the curse of sin in order that death may die. The death of death, as John Owen puts it. What about you? Is your hope in yourself? Are you hoping that you are a good enough person to get to heaven? What's that old song? You can't get to heaven on roller skates because you'll roll right past them pearly gates. That's the reality. If you're hoping in roller skates, if you're hoping in your own ability, you will miss it. And, I, and I, you desperately need to know this, guys. And I'm saying this from the bottom of my heart. Please take some soul searching time this week and ask yourself, are you born again? And remember at the very beginning of last week's sermon, I said this is a hard sermon to preach because inevitably, those who are truly saved are going to be massively convicted and they're going to question their salvation and they're going to be in a world of hurt. And I don't want to cause pain to those who are truly saved. But I do know that there are people in this room who say they are saved and they're not. They are deceiving themselves. And so I cannot let this sermon series pass without very clearly telling you that you need to examine your heart and ask yourself, do I truly believe that I am a wicked sinner that deserves the full wrath of God, yet because of God's great mercy in Jesus Christ, I trust that Christ has become sin for me. He has allowed himself, he has submitted himself to the wrath of God in my place. If that is truly the case, that almost rhymes, I can make a poem. If that is truly the case, then you're saved. You will be born again. You are born again. But this is the thing, guys. You are deceiving yourself if you think you're not saved and you don't believe you have any, or you think you're saved and you don't have any sin. If you say, I am sinless, there's no sin in me, you are either a liar or God is a liar. And I want to know who's going to win that battle. Do you have full dependence on Christ alone for salvation? If you are born again, you can rejoice in the love of God through Jesus Christ. If you are not born again, you already stand condemned you need to turn and trust Christ today. Place your trust and hope in Him alone 
today. As we sing this song, In Christ Alone, I want you to listen to the words, and I want you to ask yourself, can I truly say that? Do I truly believe what the words on the screen are saying? It's in Christ alone, right? That's what we're singing. Because we have the other one, All I Have is Christ, and I get them confused. In Christ alone. If you can truly sing that song, there's a good chance that you are saved. But if you don't believe the words on the screen, you need to ask yourself, am I saved? And if you're not saved, man, we would love to talk with you. I will be happy to pray with you in the back and talk to you, talk to you about this. If there's even a doubt in your mind, the elders would be happy to sit down and talk with you. Uh, don't have to do this on your own. It doesn't matter what age you are. If, you're, if you think, oh, I'm 80 years old and I've, I've been telling people I've been saved for the last 60, 70 years and I don't know if I'm saved and now I feel embarrassed. Will your embarrassment keep you from heaven? Will your embarrassment keep you from Christ? Let's make it right today. If you have, if you have business to do, let's make it right. This song is a good song to make your business right with the Lord. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it speaks truth. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone in this congregation who does not know you in a saving way, Father, maybe they have knowledge of you, maybe they even believe that what is said is true, but they do not trust in you and you alone for salvation. Father, I pray that you would make that abundantly clear in their lives today. Father, I pray that you would uh, cause a miracle today in the hearts of those who do not know you fully who um, are not born again. Lord, we know that we have to be born again. Father, I thank you that you have given us the gift of faith, that you have given us the gift of Christ Jesus and, and handed him to us as a propitiation, as an atonement for us. Lord, as I think about this wilderness generation in Israel and the, and the snake lifted up, and all that we had to do was look to him to be saved. Father, Christ on the cross, outside the walls of Jerusalem, hanging there for all to see. And the Gentiles, the Roman centurion, looked and saw the death of Christ hanging on the cross and said, surely this is the Son of God. We have the, the sinners, the, the thieves that were crucified next to him. One rejected him in his pride and arrogance. Yet the other said, Lord, remember me in your kingdom. And Christ forgave him, and he immediately, upon death, was transferred to the presence of the Lord. Father, what a great reality this is, that we are saved in Christ alone, not by good works, not by special prayers, not by uh, coming to church, not by any action that we do, but solely on the basis of the love of God, the abundant love of Christ. Father, we thank you. Strengthen our faith this week as we go about our business that we would be able to love those that are unlovable, those that are, are harsh to us. And help us to remember that God loved the world in this way, that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. Help us to remember that message this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.